22. And as you turn there, let me also on behalf of my wife express our uh, profound and deep gratitude for your kindness to us and the fellowship we've received from you. It's been wonderful to be here. May God bless you. May God bless your churches. May God bless New Zealand with revival from the Holy Spirit. I've looked at you, looked with you rather, at the theme of crucifying the world from a negative perspective, putting sin to death through union with Christ. Then we've looked at it from a positive perspective at doing the contrary, namely cultivating holiness also through union and communion with Christ. And now in this last address, what I want to do is I want to look with you at how Jesus meets our every need, our every need in this battle of crucifying the world. And I want to do that from verses 31 and 32 of Luke 22, but I want to read verses 30, or rather 24 through 34. 24 through 34 of Luke 22. Hear the word of God. And there was also a strife among them, which of them, that is the disciples, should be accounted the greatest. And he, Jesus, said unto them, the kings of the Gentiles exercise lordship over them, and they that exercise authority upon them are called benefactors. But ye shall not be so. For, but, but he that is greatest among you, let him be as the younger, and he that is chief as he that does serve. For whether is greater, he that sitteth at meat, or he that serveth, is not he that sitteth at meat. But I am among you as he that serveth. Ye are they which have continued with me in my temptations. And I appoint unto you a kingdom, as my Father hath appointed unto me, that ye may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom, and sit on thrones judging the twelve tribes of Israel. And then here comes my text, these two verses. And the Lord said, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan hath desired to have you, that he may sift you as wheat. But I have prayed for thee, that thy faith fail not. And when thou art converted, strengthen thy brethren. And he said unto him, Lord, I am ready to go with thee, both into prison and to death. And he said, I tell thee, Peter, the cock shall not crow this day, before that thou shalt thrice deny that thou knowest me. So far, the reading of God's word. I'm going to pray, but before I do that, I need to say that Matthew just handed me a note that due to the late start, the dinner will be postponed from 545 to 615. So I hope you don't get too hungry as I preach. Let's pray. Great God of heaven, 
we bow before thee in these moments and we pray that I would be able to make crystal clear how Jesus Christ meets our every need in the battle against sin and the world. Help us to lean hard on him as our prophet, our priest, and our king, and to find in him all the sufficiency we need through his word to fight this battle and to be more than conquerors through Jesus Christ, as has just been sung. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, a number of years ago, a young couple came to me, married only a year, and their marriage was broken. As I began to explore the problem, the young woman burst out in the presence of her husband, my husband does not meet all my needs. And when I responded to her that no one human individual can ever meet all our needs, but only Jesus can, she looked confused. He looked relieved. <laughs> but you see, no one human being, no husband, no wife, can meet all your needs. And too often we, those of us who are true Christians, expect too little of Jesus and too much of each other. You see, the Lord Jesus Christ is our office bearer par excellence. And he alone can meet our every need. As it is with his cross bearing, dying for us, so it is with his office bearing, now living for us. We can only be what Christ is calling us to be by partaking of him and following his perfect example. And since if we're believers, we share in his anointing by faith, we also are called to reflect him in his office bearing. And so the way we crucify ourselves to the world is to live out of his threefold office as prophet teaching us and warning us, as priest sacrificing for us and interceding for us, and as king ruling, guiding, and governing us in such a way that we become prophets and priests and kings back unto him and to one another thereby crucifying the world which calls us to selfish living and instead being threefold office bearers back unto him which calls us to servant living. And that makes all the difference in the world. The Heidelberg Catechism puts it so beautifully when it's discussing the names of Jesus. It talks about his name Jesus, and then the only begotten Son of God, and the Lord, all the names in the Apostles' Creed. And then it comes to the name Christ. And interestingly, after it defines the threefold office of Christ, it inserts this question, question 32, but why are you called a Christian? And the answer, 
because I am a member of Christ by faith and thus am partaker of his anointing, that so I may confess his name, that's our prophetical calling, and present myself a living sacrifice of thankfulness to him, that's my priestly calling, and also that with a free and good conscience I may fight against sin and the world and Satan in this life and afterwards reign with him eternally over all creatures, that's our kingly calling. So I want to look with you in this address, in this sermon, at Jesus' office-bearing, meeting all our needs so that we can go out and be office-bearers unto one another. From this text, Luke 22, 31, 32, let me read it again. Simon, Simon, behold, Satan has desired to have you that he may sift you as wheat, but I have prayed for thee that thy faith fail not, and when thou art converted or repentant, strengthen thy brethren. I want to look with you at Jesus meeting all our needs in three thoughts. First, through prophetical admonition. Second, through priestly intercession. And third, through kingly commission. Prophetic admonition, priestly intercession, kingly commission. Now, Jesus spoke these words directly after he instituted that sacred meal we call the Holy Lord's Supper. And directly after he instituted that meal, we read in verse 24 that the disciples were arguing together who should be counted the greatest. Can you imagine that? Just, can you imagine being Jesus at that moment? Telling them he's going to suffer, he's going to die, he's going to bleed. Instituting the supper with signs and seals of the memorial of his death through the bread, the broken bread, and the wine, symbolic of his blood, humbling himself to the death of the cross, and he goes out of the Lord's Supper, and the disciples are huddled together. Who's going to be the greatest? What a disappointment. What a suffering on top of the sufferings coming for the Lord Jesus Christ. And you see, Jesus sees in that moment that Satan, is attacking his disciples. And that as he goes to suffer for them, as the shepherd is taken from them, the sheep will be scattered. And he gives them a prophetic warning, an amazing warning, directed first of all to Simon Peter. Simon, Simon, behold, Satan has desired to have you, that he may sift you as wheat. You see, the great problem is that Simon Peter did not realize the danger he was in. Did not realize the danger of Satan's influence, Satan's presence, to try to get Simon Peter to fall, to not crucify the world, and to pamper his own flesh and his own feelings of pride that he is the leader among the twelve. 
And there is no doubt that Simon had natural leadership capabilities. It wasn't just his impetuosity and his boldness to speak that made him that. He was a natural leader. Every single time in the Synoptic Gospels that the 12 are listed, Simon Peter's name is always first. But you see, the frightening truth is that Simon Peter is not aware of Satan's presence. The comforting truth is that Jesus is. And that Jesus knew what Satan was up to. You see, one old forefather said this. It's as if Satan says, I've gotten Judas. I will have Peter next. I've picked off one of your lieutenants, Lord. Let me see if I can shoot down the colonel. Satan, you see, is always aiming, first of all, for the most zealous followers of Christ, for those especially who are ordained ministers of the word in our day, but disciples in his own day. Peter was particularly vulnerable, not only because he was a leader among the apostles, but because of his self-confidence. Peter had said, Lord, if I had to die with thee, I would never be offended with thee. You see, Peter was in danger because he saw no danger. He thought that he thought that he would carry on from strength to strength. He did not understand that God's way in helping us to crucify the world is to make his strength perfect in our weakness and our brokenness. And so it's the mercy of God. It's Jesus meeting us in our area of need. In our tendency to say yes to sin far too easily. That Jesus comes to Simon Peter now and names his name twice. Simon, Simon. Actually, it's the third double naming of Jesus in the Gospel of Luke. And all three times, double naming indicates warning. Jerusalem. Jerusalem, Martha, Martha, and now Simon, Simon. But this time, it's a triple warning because he adds the word behold. Pay attention. When our children were young. We, were, we live on a very busy road, and we, we put a, a thick chalk mark across the driveway, about 40 feet from the road. And we took each child there at an appropriate age, got down on my knees, looked the child face to face and said, don't you ever, ever, ever cross this line because you could go in the road and die. Do you understand? So our son's name is Calvin. So I said, Calvin, Calvin, do you understand me? Yes, Dad. That's what Jesus is doing here. He's looking Peter in the eye. Peter, you don't understand your danger. Take heed lest you fall. Simon, Simon, behold. It's a loving admonition. See, boys and girls, when your dad and mom warn you about something, and you don't see the danger, you think they're worried too much, actually they're loving you. They're teaching you as a prophet out of love to stay away from sin, to crucify the world. This is what Jesus is after here. 
Hence the triple warning. He's shaking Simon Peter. Wake up, Simon. Satan wants to have you. The world wants to have you. What a warning. A needed warning. Because Simon is valuable. Simon can destroy so much. He's valuable because of his past usefulness. He's valuable because of his potential future value for the cause of Christ. John Kelvin said, because the influence ministers have in the kingdom of Christ, they are Satan's primary targets. Satan declares jihad, holy war, against ministers of the gospel. He'll use, says Calvin, every weapon in his arsenal to destroy our ministries and to discredit the gospel of Jesus Christ. Hence the ministry, this is still Calvin, is not an easy and indulgent exercise, but a hard and severe warfare where Satan is exerting all his power against us and moving every stone for our disturbance. Richard Baxter is even stronger. Satan knows what a rout he can make of the troops if he can make the leader fall before their eyes. If Satan can ensnare your feet, your hands, your tongue, and make you fall, your troops will scatter and God's name will be dishonored. But it's not just those of us who are ministers. You young people, oh, how Satan wants to have you. He wants to have you. It's not just Simon Peter. Actually, this is one of those few places in the Bible where the thee and the thou and the you make a big difference. You know, thee and thou is singular, you is plural. Do you notice the text I read to you? Simon, Simon, behold, Satan has desired to have you. That's plural. He's speaking directly to Simon as the leader among the twelve. But he's including all twelve that he may sift you as wheat. And you see, that's applicable, isn't it? To every single believer. If you're a believer, Satan feels you've been stolen from his flock. And he wants you back. He can't reach Christ anymore. He's ascended on high. The best thing he can do to show his enmity against Christ is to bring you to backslide. Is to bring you to a position where you don't crucify yourself to the world. Where you blunt your witness for the cause of Jesus Christ. And so the warning comes to all of us, a loving warning in which Jesus meets our needs. Be careful. Don't flirt with the world. Don't play with temptation. Turn away from sin. Now, Satan can't get inside our minds and read every thought. He's not omniscient like Christ is. But Satan watches our behavior closely. He can tell from our looks and from our desires and from our words and from when we laugh and when we are serious and what means a lot to us and how we respond to things. He knows our weakest points. And he will come and tempt us right in those weakest points to get us to fall. It's amazing how well he knows you in me. He's like a good fisherman, and he baits his, his hook according to our sinful appetites. He comes with subtle temptations. 
and violent assaults. And we must set a watch before every gate that leads into our heart, our eye gate, our ear gate, our heart gate. We need to hear the warnings of Jesus. Faithful are the wounds of a friend. We must realize that there's a spark of hell in every temptation. William Grinnell, the Puritan, said, Satan wants you if you're a true believer. And sometimes it's embarrassing, shaming, disappointing. How easily, how easily we fall. Someone here asked me yesterday, are you a fisherman? Well, I'm not really, but when our kids were young, I thought I'd better teach my son how to fish. So I did know that you have to put a, a worm on the end of a hook, and I didn't know how to cast the line, but that's about it. We are on vacation one summer, so I taught my son. There's a lot of fishermen around. Nobody was catching anything. And I put the worm on the end of the hook, and I, I cast it out. And no sooner than it hit the water, there was a bite. And I was surprised, and I reeled that thing in, and I had no idea what the fish was. But all the fishermen came around me, and they said, you caught a walleye in this river. That is rare. What did you use for bait? I said, a worm. They said, you caught a walleye? with a measly little worm? I said, yeah. But you see, aren't there times when you just are ashamed of yourself? And Satan catches you with the smallest thing. The smallest thing. You should be so much stronger. You should be so much more holy. You should be so much more advanced than you are. I think of that often. I've had so much opportunity in my life to immerse myself in the scriptures and in godly forefathers and godly examples around me. I should be far more mature than I am, far stronger than I am. Satan wants to have you. Be warned in love. Peter brushes all this by. Oh, don't worry about me, Lord. I'll go with thee to prison and to death, he says in verse 33. Well, Satan is more powerful than Peter realizes. Satan is the Judas among the angels. He's the great apostate. He's the angel who rebelled against what God entrusted to him on the first day of creation. That Satan, who's mightier than you are, he wants to have you. The Greek verb here is actually exciteo, which is an intensified form of the verb to ask. It means to pray. It means to ask excessively, one translation says. Or another says, to put in a suit for you. In heaven's courts, Peter's a sinner. I deserve to have him, Lord. It reminds you of Job, doesn't it? When Job came in the presence of God, said, I want Job. I want Job. You see, Satan wants to have you to sift you as wheat 
That's what he wants to do with you. Now, what does that mean? Well, in Bible times, in Bible times, a farmhand, a servant, would have a, a sieve, which is a narrow, long handle with a broad scoop on the end, and the farmhand would scoop up from the threshing floor a mixture of material and shake it back and forth, shake the sieve back and forth, and the dust and dirt would fall out on the ground, and then he'd shake it up and down, and the straw and the chaff would come to the surface, leaving the wheat in the bottom of the sieve. And you see, Satan's desire is to shake you, to shake you in his sieve, be it in a sieve of adversity, be it in a sieve of prosperity, to shake you so the dust and dirt falls out, and the straw and chaff comes to the surface and chokes the grains of wheat in the bottom of the sieve. Satan wants to have you, to sift you as wheat, Jesus says, to violently shake you up and down. He wants to rock you so hard that the graces God has worked in your heart will be choked and strangled by the straw and chaff that he brings to the surface. And when you read the Bible, even the saints of God often didn't do very well, did they, in Satan's sieve. Satan's sieve, Abraham said, Sarah's my sister. In Satan's sieve, Jacob said, all these things are against me when they were really for him. In Satan's sieve, so many of God's people have floundered. They floundered. Peter is about to deny the Lord in Satan's sieve. And often we do no better. Old pieces of straw and chaff resurface in us and threaten to choke out the wheat. The hour of temptation often reveals how weak, how powerless, how selfish, how capricious, how unbelieving we still are. How easily we can backslide. Paul groans about it in Romans 7, doesn't he? In my flesh dwells no good thing. He's speaking as a believer. How frightening. Satan's sifting is when old sins that we thought we had long subdued, even destroyed, are brought to the surface again. And it seems as if everything the grace of God has worked in us disappears. We scan our hearts in vain for saving grace. Sometimes we hardly claim a desire for God. Sometimes we can't even pray. And Satan's sieve, we can feel overpowered by sin. We fear that we'll return to the world. That we won't crucify the world, but we'll return to our former life and become, as Peter puts it, like a dog that returns to its vomit. And we cry out in Satan's sieve, am I a true believer at all? Am I just a mere hypocrite? Friend, don't ever joke about Satan. Satan is a serious, a real enemy, not a trivial enemy. We're opposed by a cunning and resourceful enemy who can outlive us and outwork us and outwit us. In his sieve, we learn more profoundly than ever that the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? And something about Satan, he always seems to be a step ahead of us. I read a story some time ago of a watermelon farmer 
some thieves came into his watermelon patch and began to steal beautiful watermelon. Every night they'd steal some more. So the watermelon farmer thought he'd fix them, so he, he put a sign out in the middle of the watermelon patch, warning, one of these watermelon is poisoned. For two weeks, no watermelon were stolen. He thought he solved the problem. And then one day he walks out into his watermelon patch, and there's another sign beside his sign. Warning, two watermelon are poisoned. He has to throw away the whole patch. Satan is like that. You think you've got him conquered. You, you, you think you've shut the front door on him and, he, and he's gone. And he slips in the back door with something else. He's an accuser of the brethren. He's out to get you. Well, if our text ended there, it would be rather discouraging. But there's a but here. Just a wonderful but God. But I myself, it's in the emphatic tense, but I myself have prayed for thee that thy faith fail not. Our warning prophet who warns us in love is also our praying high priest to keep us in the midst of the warnings. So that we will not flounder and that our faith will not fail. You see, Jesus is greater than Satan. And Jesus has greater claims than Satan on you. Why? Well, because he's gone through Satan's sieve himself. More than you will ever have to go through. And he came out sinless. He gained the victory. He never capitulated. He never lied. He never, he never acted like Abraham or Jacob or Peter. He never floundered in the sieve. Forty days he was in the wilderness at the beginning of his public ministry, tempted by Satan, tempted by Satan, tempted by Satan. And every single time he leaned on the Word of God and rebuffed the enemy. A beautiful thing about Jesus is that when you belong to him, you belong to someone stronger than Satan. Satan's stronger than you, but Jesus is stronger than Satan. Jesus is God of God. Satan's only a fallen angel. Angels are more powerful than human beings. But Jesus is more powerful than angels. And he says, but I. You see, Satan claims to have you in heaven's courts. And then Jesus puts in a counterclaim. But I myself... I myself have prayed for you, and I pray on better grounds than Satan prays because I've merited your salvation. I've gone through the sieve. I've shed my blood for you. I have a right to you. I can claim you on the grounds of justice. You belong to me. If you're a true believer, you are mine, and I am yours. What a comfort. He meets our needs through not only his priestly sacrifice of dying for us, but particularly what fo is focused on here. He meets our needs through his priestly intercession for us. I often say to my theological students, 
Do you want to know what the most underrated doctrine is in all of Reformed theology? It's the intercession of Christ. We talk a lot about Christ's death, and rightly so. We talk a lot about his resurrection, and, and rightly so. But how little, strangely, do we talk about his intercession? It's odd. You see, he saved me on Calvary's cross. He shed his blood for my salvation. That's a miracle. That's a wonder. That's glorious. It's beautiful. But I need to be kept saved, as we heard this morning. And his preservation, so that I in turn persevere, is intimately wrapped up in his intercession. Hebrews 7.25, he ever lives to make intercession for us. Now listen very carefully. Jesus has a capacity to intercede for all his people at the same time. As one large group, yes, but also every single individual believer because he's infinite. You, you and I, men, we can only focus on one thing at a time. You women, maybe four or five. You know, God's given you extra gifts that way because, you know, if you have several children, you've got to somehow know where the, all, all, all five of them are or all seven of them are. But you have your limitations too. Jesus knows where all the millions of his people are at any one time. And he ever lives to intercede for every one of them at every moment. That's what Hebrews 7.25 is saying. So he's interceding for me right now as I'm preaching. He's interceding for you right now as you're listening. He's interceding for us every single second of our life, every click of the, every tick of the clock. Do you understand what a comfort that is? I am weak. I am needy. I'm prone to sin, prone to wander. He's interceding for me. He's keeping me at the Father's right hand. He dies for me that I might live. And he now lives for me at the right hand of the Father, that I may die daily to this world and die daily to my own self-righteousness and live by faith in the Son of God. He meets my needs, not only as my teaching prophet and my warning prophet, but also as my sacrificial priest who died for me and the one who now intercedes to continue to live for me. And what does he pray? He prays, Peter, I pray that your faith, your faith fail not. And notice, notice in verse 32, but I, it's God's grace, you see, intervening, but I, I myself have prayed for, King James Version, thee, wait a minute. Thee, I thought, you, I thought you said, Lord, behold, Satan desired to have you, plural, that he may sift you, all the disciples, as we. But you see the personalness of, of the intercession. But I have prayed for thee. Now he's speaking just to Peter, individually. See, every one of you, if you're a believer, he prays for you individually. And what does he pray? That thy faith. I love that. Thy faith fail not. Why? 
Why does Jesus pray just that? Thy faith will not. Well, because the word fail here, it's a very interesting Greek word, eklipo. And from eklipo, we get the word eclipse. Like eclipse of the moon, the eclipse of the sun. Blotted out temporarily. Jesus is saying, I'm praying for you that your faith will never be eclipsed. Your faith will never totally disappear. Your faith will not be wiped out without a trace. Your faith will not be overturned and die. Jesus is saying, Peter, I'm not praying that your self-righteousness, your self-leadership, your self-boasting won't fail. No, Peter. I'm praying that your faith won't fail. And why faith? Because as we heard earlier in this conference, faith has one object. It's Jesus. Matthew Henry says here so beautifully, Christ honors faith the most because faith honors Christ the most. Faith has one direct object. It's Jesus. And you see, that's the thing that cannot die. If we're going to keep crucifying the world, if our faith is fixed on Jesus, you see, we have strength to go forward to say no to sin and yes to Christ. Heidelberg Catechism says, we are so weak in ourselves that we cannot stand a moment. But you see, that weakness is exactly what forces us compels us, draws us to cast ourselves upon our intercessory high priest, to preserve us in the midst of the sea. The storms of this life, the temptations of the world. As long as Peter looked to Jesus on the waves, he was fine. As soon as he looked at the waves, he started to sink. You see, the way to crucify the world is to keep your eyes on your great high priest who prays for you from moment to moment, and uses even Satan's devices to overrule Satan, to lead you on from strength to strength and victory to victory. You see, what a farmhand would do, when that straw and that chaff came to the surface, a good farmhand would reach in and take out the straw with his hand and blow away the chaff so that only the wheat remains. Satan wants to keep it there, to choke the wheat. But Jesus is his father's farmhand, his father's servant. Think of Isaiah. And he reaches in and he takes away all the straw and the chaff. He purges you. He empties you of your own righteousness. He lets so many things fail in your life. So that you learn that there's one thing that cannot fail. One thing that you cannot let go of. That is faith in Jesus. And he keeps that alive. He'll use your trials to keep that alive. He'll use your prosperity to keep that alive. He'll use your weakness to keep that alive. But he won't let your faith fail. So Jesus reaches in as the Father's servant into the sifting process. He removes the straw. He blows away the chaff so that only the wheat abides. Now, John Calvin said so beautifully, so beautifully, a statement that when I first read it in his commentary in this text, I, th I thought, 
Calvin, what happened to you? I thought you were a good commentator. He says this, even the devil can sometimes act as a doctor for us. What are you talking about, Calvin? Well, you see, Calvin says, Christ turns all of Satan's sifting of us onto its head so that it too works for our good in our greater conformity to the image of Christ. Have you, ever, have you ever experienced that in your own life? That the very things that Satan was using to destroy you, to sift you and empty you, and lead you to stop crucifying the world, those very things God uses to make you more dependent on Him, to cry out to Him for help, to surrender to your great high priest. Maybe sometimes you, you, you brought so low you could scarcely cry out. You could scarcely pray. You could scarcely get the word Lord out. You were in such impossibility, such need, such overwhelming trials. It seemed there's no future, no way out. You're hemmed in on every side. Red seas before you, mountains on both sides. The Philistines are coming behind. There's no way of escape. And you cry out to God. Lord Jesus, I can't even pray. Pray thou for me. And he intercedes for you and opens the way in the Red Sea and delivers you in that temptation. And the very things Satan meant to use to destroy you are the very things God uses in his overruling high priestly power to bring you closer to him. And to treasure the more his high priestly work. This is so beautiful. Satan asked for permission to sift us, but Christ has earned the right to use Satan's sifting for the eternal salvation and keeping of our own. As we heard this morning, he preserves you so that you persevere by faith in him. And so you will not perish by the hand of Saul, as uh, David cried out. You will not perish at the hand of Satan, as Judas did. Why not? Well, because your faith does not die. Because your faith is still fixed on Jesus by the grace of Jesus himself. Because Jesus won't allow your faith to be eclipsed. The waters of affliction may threaten to drown you, but your faith is not fully eclipsed. Your interceding advocate is still upholding your faith even in the midst of agony and strife. Your faith will not fail because Jesus is praying for you. And Jesus could say, Father, I know that you hear my prayer always, always, always. There's never a moment if you're a believer you're outside of the prayers of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so we plead, you see, by faith, such promises as 1 Corinthians 10, 13. There is no temptation taken hold of you, but such as is common to man. But God is faithful, who will not suffer you to be tempted above that ye are able to bear, but will, with the temptation, also make a way of escape that you may be able to bear it. 
Jesus meets all your needs. He'll keep you in the palm of his hand. The Lord Jesus will not lose a single one of his own, no matter how hard Satan sifts you. And on the day of judgment, there'll be no empty chairs in heaven. No empty chairs. Here am I, Father, and all those whom thou hast given me. There's a beautiful text in Amos that says this. Despite our being sifted, yet shall not the smallest grain of wheat fall upon the earth. The dust and the dirt will fall. The straw will be plucked away. The chaff will be blown away. But the wheat of the real people of God will abide. Not one grain will fall through the sieve to the ground. Jesus won't lose one. He won't lose one. He will meet all your needs. But not only as prophet and priest, also as king. Also as king. Look at the end of verse 32. And when thou art converted, when thou art converted, strengthen thy brethren. Now, the word converted here means to be turned around. You could, you could perhaps better translate it repentant. It's not that Peter had never been converted. But he had to, he had to be uh, converted with a kind of daily conversion of, of repentance. He was strained. He denied the Lord. He would deny the Lord. And uh, Jesus is warning him. But he's also comforting him. He's not minimizing Peter's sin. Peter's sin is an awful sin. I don't have time to preach about that tonight. You've heard many sermons about how terrible it is to deny the Lord. It's dreadful. But I want to focus on this little declarative word, when, when thou art repentant, strengthen thy brethren. See, Jesus doesn't say, if you repent, Peter, <laughs> I'm standing helpless by. I can't do it. You have to do it, Peter. It's up to you. No, no, no. It's the word of a king. And where there's a word of a king, there is power. There is authority. And a king is one who has many subjects. Peter, I'm going to keep you. You're going to deny me. I'm going to break you, Peter, in order to use you more. But I'm going to bring you back. And when you are repentant, not if, because it will happen. I will see to it that it will happen. When you are repentant, go out and strengthen your brethren. You see, Satan puts in a claim for Christ, Peter. Christ puts in a counterclaim. And then with his calm, majestic, kingly commission, he retains his supremacy over Satan and says, I will bring you to repentance, and you will go out and strengthen your brethren. The commentator J.P. Lang says so beautifully, the holy supplication of mercy countervails before God the daring appeal of the accuser. See, Peter never would have repented if left to himself. But one look from Christ, one look from Christ in the hall of Caiaphas, Peter goes out and weeps bitterly. Not even a word, just a look. 
I have a brother with 13 children and uh, 59 grandchildren and 39 great-grandchildren. It's a congregation all by itself. <laughs> and uh, I love that family. Uh, they're, all, they're all saved. They're all married Christians. It's just a wonderful family. Their entertainment is just to go see each other. And uh, one day I'm sitting in their house. They've got a long kind of a living room area with then a long, long kitchen table and then a kitchen. And it's all open. And I'm sitting in the living room. My sister-in-law is uh, in the kitchen with her back turned preparing dinner. And it's about quarter to five in the afternoon. And an eight-year-old boy who doesn't see me, but he's come sneaking into the room with his eye upon his mother. And there's a bowl of cookies on the kitchen table. And he knows he shouldn't have them this late before the meal. And he quietly gets on a chair and reaches out his arm to take a cookie. Now, you've got to know my sister-in-law. She's quite an amazing woman. Two strong things about her. Intense love of every one of those children. Amazing love. But also amazing firmness. I mean, when she looks with anger, you wilt. You wilt. And of course, boys and girls, you know your mothers have eyes in the back of their head. And so as he's reaching for the cookies, all of a sudden she turns around and she gives him one of those looks. I mean, it was enough to make me wilt way in the living room. And his hand freezes. And he slowly pulls it back. He slips off the chair, walks away. There wasn't a one word exchanged between the two of them. But this look of Jesus was a different look. It was a look that said this, Peter, do you really not know me? I love you still. I love you still. It was a look of love and a bit of hurt, don't you think? You don't know me, Peter. But I know you. I know you. And I love you. And Peter is smitten. And he walks out. Weeping. 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 And Jesus suffers, dies, and then arises from the dead. And he says, go tell my disciples. And Peter. I still love Peter. Peter's still included. That Peter who thought he sinned himself away, no doubt. Oh, the power of grace. When thou art repentant, go out and strengthen thy brethren. What is Jesus doing? He's meeting Peter's every need. What was Peter's problem? He was standing too tall. If he would have gone out and become the leader of the apostles in the New Testament church, he would have beat up those little sheep. He was standing so high above everyone. I, you know, I love, I love you, Lord, more than all the other apostles. And uh, though, though all men will be offended with you, yet will not, I'll go to prison with you. I'll go to death with you. And now he, he says, I don't know who he is in front of a measly little servant girl. The man is broken. But that's exactly what Jesus wants to do with him. 
Because once you're broken, once you're really broken, you can reach out to the needy. You can bring the gospel to the most broken person. You can say to that person, if he can save me, he can save you. A.W. Tozer once said, God will normally not use a man greatly until he's broken him deeply. It's out of being broken that we can have pastoral hearts toward one another. That we can go out and strengthen our brethren. That we can go out and say to each other, there are no hopeless cases with the Lord. He's the almighty King of kings. And he will bring in all his subjects to himself. So how does Peter go out and strengthen the brethren? Well, who was it on the day of Pentecost? Just weeks later. Who was it that preached that amazing sermon and 3,000 people were converted? It's Simon Peter. Yes, he floundered once or twice later in the book of Acts and had to be rebuked by Paul. But for the most part, who were the leaders of the New Testament church throughout the entire book of Acts? It was Peter and Paul. And who strengthened the brethren through those beautiful two epistles, which after the opening greeting in first epistle said, we are kept by the power of faith unto salvation. Faith that will not fail. It's Simon Peter. And who later says in that epistle, but Satan goes about as a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. To warn us still today, it's Simon Peter. He's strengthening the brethren. He's strengthening the brethren. The king has captured his heart. The king has gone out and won him over afresh. And Peter is now to go out and to strengthen the brethren. And you, if you're a believer, that's your calling. As this conference is winding down to a close tomorrow. Your calling is not just to crucify the world, but to crucify the world in such a way that you don't focus on the crucifixion. You rather rise above this world and you go out and you'll be an office bearer to your brothers and to your sisters, to the backsliders, to the unconverted, warning, teaching, praying for them, guiding them. Leading them. Saying a word to each person you meet as opportunity affords. Building them up in the Lord. Convicting them of sin. Directing them to Jesus. Yes. Jesus meets our every need so that we can go out and be his instruments to meet the needs of others. So are you a member of Christ by faith? Are you a partaker of his anointing? If so, you're a Christian. And what does a Christian mean? Christian literally meant little Christ. It was a name of mockery. Oh, these are the little Christ walking around. Of course, you're not a little Christ. But eventually, everybody called them Christians. So, they, well, the name stuck. Today, we look at that word and we say, well, we're not little Christ, but we want to be conformed to Christ. So Christian really isn't a bad name. It's not a bad name. But to be a Christian is to be a prophet. Not a prophet that predicts the future. That wasn't the main task of a prophet. 
The very word prophet means to boil over. It means you can't hold back. It means the stones would cry out if you didn't speak about the Lord and his salvation. You're called to go out and be a prophet. That's how you crucify the world. You care about other people's salvation so much. You've got no time for the world. You want to go out and speak to others of the wonderful things of God. You want to strengthen the brethren like Peter. Be sober, be vigilant. Your adversary, the devil, goes around as a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. But you also want to tell others, there's a Savior who's willing to save the greatest of sinners. Hear me. Yes, this is a Christian, that I may confess his name. Are you doing that? Are you confessing his name to friend and to foe? To everyone, to your children, to your parents, to your unconverted brothers and sisters. Can you hold back? You've got a great Savior. Are you confessing his name? Confessing his name to those people you sit next to on the airplane, or on the bus, or on the train. Everyone needs what a true Christian has. If you have it, you've got to share it. Confess his name. Be a prophet out of the great prophet. But also be a living sacrifice of thankfulness. To be a living sacrifice of thankfulness means you intercede for others out of gratitude for what God has done for you. You want others to have it. You want to bless them through your intercessions to your Savior. Are you consecrated to Jesus in what you do with your energy, your time, your talents, in the home, the school, the office, everyday business? Do you pledge allegiance to Christ in everything you have, your money, your possessions, your very thoughts? Are you a priestly intercessor for others? Are you praying for worldwide revival? In America, of course, we had, we had the Great Awakening. Oh, I'm, I'm, I'm just praying regularly. Lord, give a Great Awakening greater than the original Great Awakening. Bring in millions, millions. Send revival. Fill the earth with the knowledge of the Lord from sea to sea. Oh, God, make a great name for thyself. And then do you serve him as king? queen, by strengthening your fellow believers, by fighting against sin and Satan, by anticipating reigning with him eternally. The true Christian, by grace, will overcome the world, crucify the world, the devil and sin, because Jesus has overcome the world, the devil and sin. And one day, all Christians will be gathered to the true Christ forever to be with their King of Kings in glory forever. So be a counselor to wanderers. Flee every day to Christ as your teaching prophet, your interceding priest, your guiding king. Defy Satan with the word of God. Conquer the world by living by faith in Christ. Don't give way to despair because of the sifting of Satan. He's chained. Christ is victorious. He wants to claim you. Yes, Satan wants to do that. But Christ's claim upon you is stronger. So be hopeful. Be sober. Be vigilant. Don't be overly self-confident nor overly fearful. But stand guard against the wiles of the serpent. And remember, 
your Savior is praying for you, that your faith won't fail. And remember the promise of Romans 16, verse 10, the God of peace shall bruise Satan under your feet shortly. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. And for those of you who are unsaved, you can be saved, even today, by the grace of this almighty prophet, priest, and king. Aren't you weary of sin? Don't you feel emptiness in your own heart? Aren't you tired of yourself and the humdrum of life? This world is boring. It's dull. It's gray. It's dry compared to Jesus. This world is so flat, so one-dimensional. Christ, may I say it with reverence, is three-dimensional. He's real. He's beautiful. Once you know him, the world pales in significance. Flee to this Savior while you yet have opportunity. While it's still a day of grace, you don't know if you'll live tomorrow. Make haste for your life's sake. I want to close with this illustration. There was once a chess champion, world chess champion. He was going through Europe. He was going to museums. And he, he came to a certain oil painting in a European museum that was called Checkmate. And it was a picture of two people, one dressed up like Satan with horns, another one a young man biting his nails. And Satan was moving his queen into the position to checkmate the king of the young man. The chess champion was fascinated. He studied the painting for a long while. And then finally, he suddenly got excited and he cried out to the young man. He said, young man, there's a move you can make and you can actually checkmate Satan. And then he thought, oh, this, this guy can't even hear me. But you can hear me this afternoon because you're still alive. And I want to say to you, if you're not saved, if Christ is not your Lord, your Savior, your treasure, your number one, your all in all, if you can't say, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain, you can checkmate Satan by the grace of God. How do you do it? You get down on your knees and you repent of your sin and your selfishness and your godlessness and your enamored enamoration with the world. You repent, and you cast yourself at the feet of Jesus. You say, Lord, I believe. Help thou my unbelief. I trust him. Surrender to him by his grace. The Holy Spirit is willing to give that to you as Christ is willing to die for sinners just like you, as the Father is willing to give the Son. Father, Son, Holy Spirit are willing, more than willing, to save the greatest sinner. This is a faithful saying and worthy to be accepted of all, that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, said Paul, of whom I am chief. Are you beyond the chief sinner? You can be saved by the power of Christ. For he meets all our needs. Repent. Give up your self-righteousness. And surrender to the prophet of prophets, 
the priest of priests, and the king of kings. Amen. Let's pray. Gracious God, we thank thee so much for a Savior who meets our every need as triple office bearer so that we may go out and be triple office bearers in his name. We pray, help us to live in this new world of being his office bearers rather than in being drawn to the old world of sin and iniquity and temptation and the breaking of thy law. Oh, deliver us, Lord, from the bondage of sin. Help us to repent of sin and to believe in thy Son and to live wholly and solely unto him. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, my last time to talk to you about a few books. <laughs> real quickly, real quickly. Knowing and Growing an Assurance of Faith. Um, this is my simplified book for lay people. I did my doctoral dissertation in this, and I feel very strongly about this. And I've tried to bring my studies of a lifetime on this subject into a 150-page paperback. If you know of anyone struggling with this, please, please get that for them. In fact, I'd pay for it so you can get it to them. Um, my wife and I wrote four books very recently, and um, they're for children three to six called God and Me. One is I need to trust in God, one is I need to hope in God, one I, I need to love God, and one I need to love my neighbor. So they're not books that just teach a moral, but our goal was to teach very young children the basics of the gospel. And the last page of each book, it, we try to explain how the parents should use this book to teach the basics of salvation to their, to their children. So they're stories, and we teach the basics of salvation through stories. And um, the book room informs me they're going to knock a big chunk off of this so that the whole thing is going, all four volumes will be for 40, 40 New Zealand dollars. Um, if you're a preacher or a teacher or you're interested in preaching and you want to know what preaching should be like in terms of reaching the heart, uh, this book, Reform Preaching, Proclaiming God's Word from the Heart of the Preacher to the Heart of His People, is a, a book that will explain how in, in, in the Re Reformation and Puritan age, they reached the hearts, they reached the hearts of their people and how they did that preaching experientially to their people, both objectively and subjectively in a proper biblical balance. This is the Reformation Heritage KJV Study Bible. It's, it's the first KJV Bible. This is amazing, but it's the first one that really has solidly reformed notes throughout. And um, it's done by a, a number of, of very godly men at our institution, mainly, but also some others. And at the end of each chapter, there's also the family worship guide included in this, in this book. Also, Sinclair Ferguson has a series of articles in here showing how the Holy Spirit has worked throughout all the centuries. One, one page per century summarizing it. And then there's 36 articles in here on how to live different aspects of the Christian life. And 50-some articles on how, what are the basics of Reformed doctrine 
as well as the Westminster Standards and the Three Forms of Unity. So there's a lot in this Bible that you could use, and uh, may God bless it to you. And finally, last book I'm going to recommend is the book that, it's four-volume set by Wilhelmus Albrockel. He, he wrote it in 1700, but it's been freshly translated from Dutch into English in the 1990s. And uh, I worked with a translator editing it for six years. I was sorry when it was done. This is my favorite set of books in my entire library of 30,000 books. Um, I, if you put me on a desert island and you said I could take only one book with me, I would, I would take this. Well, I get four books that way, but <laughs> I would take this. Why? Because it is such a, it's at a layman's level, and it's, it's reformed systematic theology, looking at each doctrine. At the end of each chapter, there's a practical pastoral application of a couple, three, four pages showing what to do with this doctrine. And it's absolutely beautiful. Absolutely beautiful. That's volumes one and two. Volumes three and four are the old style of doing ethics combined with systematics so that ethics don't go liberal, that they stay grounded in the word. And in the ethics section, there are some marvelous chapters, like how do I use the promises of God in my life? A whole chapter. How do I gain spiritual strength in the midst of affliction? Whole chapter. Zeal, a whole chapter. These kinds of things, as well as exposition of living all ten commandments. So you will, you will love these volumes. And uh, also on this one, I talked to them at the store. They're going to knock down the price from 250 New Zealand dollars for the four volumes down to 190 So that's a very special price, half off, actually. So those are the books. God bless you. It's been wonderful being with you. Hope to see you tomorrow, but it's my last chance to say goodbye to all of you at once. God bless you.